your Bibles with me to Ezra chapter 6 this morning, Ezra 6 or page 378 in your uh, Bibles that we provide. Sometimes people wonder, and you may have had this question, if God is good, why is there evil? Um, we're not going to discuss that this morning. But if there's a short answer, it's this. God is not the cause of evil. Rather, Satan and sin and sinful man has created a sinful world. But I think there's a better question that we should examine this morning. And that's the question, why is there any good in a sinful world at all. How did good happen in a sinful world? Why is there a beautiful sunrise over Lake Michigan? Why are there gorgeous mountain ranges? Why are there blueberries and roses and babies that giggle at your family reunion? Why is it that if you drop a $20 bill in line at the cash register, someone is likely to pick it up and give it back to you instead of putting it in their pocket? And why did firefighters rush into the burning Twin Towers 18 years ago to rescue people? Why is there good? I think the problem of evil is rather simple, given the sinfulness of man. What's remarkable is the presence of good, which can only be really explained by the reality of a God who is the source of it, and he is good. And so I hope this morning you will be encouraged as we look at God's detailed, specific intervention of goodness into the lives of his people about 520 to 516 B.C. The book of Ezra traces how 50,000 Jews came back from exile in Babylon, where they had been some 50 to 70 years under God's discipline. But they come back some 900 miles to the homeland. For some of them, it was the first time there because they were born in Babylon. They came back. They were, in fact, sent. They were, in fact, commissioned by King Cyrus under the sovereign hand of God to go back to Israel with one particular express purpose, and that is to rebuild the temple and restart worship as God meant it to be. And so they did. They started to rebuild the temple. And then they stopped. They stopped for some 50, 15 years because of uh, discouragement, because of fear, and because of self-centeredness. And so in Ezra chapter 5, we see that God sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to motivate them to restart, and they did. In Ezra 6 today, we see them complete the rebuilding of the temple. And we see God's hand of goodness and the glimpses of goodness 
that they experienced, and I know we do too. So we're going to jump into chapter 6, verse 1, with, filled with a few uh, details, and then we'll explain them. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana, in the province of Media, and this is what was written on it. So that raises some questions. First of all, King Darius is the king of the entire Persian Empire. He's some 900 miles away in Persia slash Babylon. Another key character we will meet again in verse 6 is Tatanai. So Tatanai is the uh, Persian official appointed by Darius to oversee the area where Israel is in his kingdom. Last week in chapter 5, we see that Tatanai was evidently unaware of this temple rebuilding project because he must have come to his post during that 15-year delay. And so when the Jews started to rebuild the temple, there had evidently been some objection, again, from the local Samaritans who had objected and hired lawyers, in fact, trying to stop the project back 15 years before. So there was this dispute and so Tatanai did the right thing. He sent a letter back to King Darius to say, do the Jews really have authority to rebuild the temple as they claim to have? And so that's what's happening in verse 1 where it says they searched in the archives stored at the treasury at Babylon, in Babylon and finally the scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana. Now, all the ar- archives were all hard copy back then, so they had to find something to get this document. Let's take a look at where Ecbatana is, because I know you had that question as you woke up this morning. So here's Israel, and uh, Babylon, the city, is over here. And there actually exists from 370 B.C., which is a biography of King Cyrus, the original king that we know from Ezra 1 authorized the Jews to go rebuild the temple. And in this biography of Cyrus, the king, we find that he was something of an ancient snowbird because he spent winters in Babylon and he spent springs in Susa, it says, and he spent summers in Ecbatana. So he kind of traveled around like some of our people, you guys do too. And they're about 200 miles apart and that was... That's the way he rolled. Ecbatana today looks something like this. You can see that would be a kind of a nice place to hang out in the summer. In fact, it might be a good guess then that since this is where that scroll was found, documenting that Cyrus gave permission, in fact commissioned the Jews to go and rebuild, uh, perhaps that all happened during summer and it was stored in a citadel or fortress over here. It's 18 years later when Darius's, the new king, Darius's researchers find it there, and let's read what they found. In the first year, verse 3, of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices, and let its foundations be laid. Keep in mind, this is a foreign king with pagan backgrounds authorizing the Jews to go and build the temple to God Almighty. Middle of verse 3, it is to be 90 feet high, 90 feet wide, with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. 
The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, that's uh, 50-some years later, are to be returned to their place in the temple of Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. So it almost makes you kind of chuckle at the goodness of God when they find this document proving the Jews have the legal right to rebuild it. Rebuild it, present sacrifices, here's how big it is. And who's supposed to pay for it? (laughs) Persian money is supposed to help support this project and return all the gold and silver articles. So yes, you can build it. And yes, Tat and I, we will pay for it. It's hilariously good news, I think. God's goodness, you know, peeking through when there's this cloud of suspicion and opposition and conflict back in the land. One of the government, governmental distinctives of the Medo-Persian Empire, we've mentioned before, is that when a king made a law, it became permanent. It had to stay permanent. There are uh, evidences of this in our Old Testament books of Daniel, as well as Esther, and now here as well is an example. So what Cyrus had decreed 18 years ago, Darius had no alternative but to accept it, and enforce it. So, King Darius, how seriously are you taking this permission thing? Verse 6, Then Tatani, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bazani, and you, their fellow officials in that province, stay away from there, the temple site. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree that you are to do for these elders of the Jews what you are to do for the elders of the Jews in this construction of this house of God. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues, your tax money, of the trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem. They They can write their own Purchase orders must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. (laughs) So Tatanai writes a very specific letter and says to the officials, don't get in the way. Make sure you pay all the expenses and what else, whatever is needed. Basically a a blank check from from the federal Persian government, whatever they want, even the daily help. And what's motivating Darius? That last verse tells us it's, it's a fear of God. Now, he says that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. I don't think this proves that Darius becomes a, a believer, but it does sure show that he has a respect for the God of Israel Reading between the lines of what his predecessor, King Cyrus, had said, he could tell that um, Cyrus certainly revered the God of Israel. It wouldn't be a stretch that Cyrus himself was a believer, but Darius at least wanted to be on this God's good side. Can you imagine the impact this letter had as it was read? To the Jews who actually had not stopped because this issue was uncertain. They had continued, we saw in the last chapter, they had continued to rebuild and 
in, in spite of the cloud and the tension of, of the local Samaritans who opposed it and the, and the unknown of whether or not the, the king would approve it. And now suddenly they're released to do what they came to do. And I, we have this letter recorded word for word, I'm sure, because the Jews are saying, this is really the goodness of God. And, and God wanted to make sure that we have it word for word here in 2019 so we have yet another evidence in the stack of evidences of the goodness of God when he interjects his goodness in an otherwise sinful, fallen, broken, evil world. God's goodness, if you think of the big picture, has been seen throughout this process. Even, even the discipline of God of his people with the 70-year captivity in Babylon was for the good of the nation. It's his severe goodness. When you see a parent who disciplines a child who needs it, you say, that is good. God's goodness is seen in that he stirred Cyrus, chapter 1, verse 1 of Ezra, to commission them to rebuild. You see, the goodness of God is God stirred the hearts uh, throughout chapters 1, 2, and 3 of these 50,000 who came back. And as they restarted the project, you see the goodness of God that they wanted to go and they wanted to do this. And now you see the goodness of God oozing out as he delights to, to give them this fresh permission and payment. This is the incomparable goodness of God. So why do good things happen in an evil world? That's a good question. It certainly is not because Somehow, in a random progression of evolution, we came from nothing to personal beings who love one another and create families and societies that work and bear children and grandchildren who grow up to bring joy and goodness. You just can't explain that. How we came from nothing to evolve into Goodness. Goodness did not come from some kind of an energy explosion. Goodness didn't come from some blob of molecules that somehow progressed to the place of personal relationships and goodwill towards one another. Goodness doesn't flow from physical matter any more than rocks can talk. It just doesn't happen. Goodness comes from goodness. Goodness is a personal thing, from a personal being. Let's see, God is personal. God is eternal, so he has always been. And God is all-powerful, so that he created all things. And if you recall, he created them how? Good. Good. In fact, the goodness of God is so worth repeating, you find it punctuating the, the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That lays the, the foundation of all theology. It all came from God. Everything came from God. And so God said, let there be light, and God saw the light was good. The seas, God saw that was good. Guess what? The trees bearing fruit, that was good. Two great lights to give light, sun and moon. God saw that was good. 
The great sea creatures, the winged birds, God saw that was good. The beasts of the earth, God saw that was good. Then God said, let's make man in our image after our own likeness. And, and so he did that. And as he wrapped it all up, he said, and God saw everything he had made. And behold, it was very good. Goodness comes from a good God. Goodness flows from goodness, and it's always personal. So it comes from God to us. And so what is to be our response to the goodness of God? Well, probably all of your parents taught you that when you were young, that if somebody handed you something that was good, you say, thank you, yes. And, and so when we see the creation that is good, and I'm sure many of us enjoyed it in some special way this summer, when we have people in our lives who love us, when we experience God's personal intervention in our life in unique ways to our situation, so that there is the finger of God who has targeted, aimed his goodness in specific ways at us, what can we do but say thanks? There's a phrase that keeps popping up in the inspired songs of Israel. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 107.1, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. There's two more times. Let's read them together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Wow. In fact, you notice that the goodness of God is tied to what? His steadfast love. Uh, that is a special, unique, family kind of love in the Old Testament. Hesed love. It's his unconditional, loyal covenant love of God to his people. It's a one-way, unconditional love. It's the best grace word of the Old Testament. So out of his goodness, then to his, his goodness in general, everybody gets to enjoy creation and so many good things, but then in a special way it funnels down to God and his family, spiritually. And we experience his grace. So God's goodness is seen in creation in that general sense, and it's like you can see God's goodness like a, you see the, the, the mind of an artist by what he or she paints. But there is an even deeper sense of God's goodness when it comes in relationship because now it's not art, but it's, it's actions. It's targeted, specific, detailed ways in which God lets us see his goodness in glimpses throughout our often difficult existence in a sinful world we can glimpse the goodness of God shining through. That's what Ezra 6 is about, where, where, where this goodness shines through these details, and I know you have them. And you can list them. And so you know, around Thanksgiving time, we try to remember some of those things. Let's just keep doing that. Can it get any better than for Darius to confirm their right to rebuild and pay for it? Well, if you're someone who appreciates justice, it gets even better. Verse 11. 
Furthermore, I decree that if anyone changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled from his house and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. And for this crime, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. That's a very effective way to uh, reinforce a law. And so if you enjoy uh, justice as part of your personality, you might smile a little bit. I think this is one of the reasons uh, many people enjoy TV crime shows, because the bad guys keep getting caught. Even if it's imaginary, it at least happens, right? This is not imaginary. So the king of Persia not only decrees that they must not hinder the project and that Persia will help pay for the project, but in fact, if anyone dares get in the way, it's not just a slap on the wrist. But officials will come and tear down your house and impale you on one of the timbers. God delights to bless those who delight him. God delights to bless those who delight him. Biblical history is filled, punctuated with that truth of God's desire to bless. Jesus compared God's goodness to his children to a father's goodness to his children. He put it like this. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Obviously, no. If he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Are you kidding? If you then, though you are evil, thank you for that clear evaluation, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You see, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. And the lesser is that every one of us is a sinner in a sinful world, and so the very best parent is still sinful and yet knows how to give good gifts to their kids. So wouldn't God, who is perfect and sinless, do that which is good? Jesus' illustration makes it clear this is not just a blank Check to selfish prosperity because good dads don't spoil their children. But to provide the essentials of life, that's why we go to work every day, dads and moms, right? To provide the, the food and the clothing and the shelter. Of course we're going to do that. And then it's amazing how many times we just desire to lavish something extra special on our children. So if sinners do that, for sinful children, what must God do for us? Everybody enjoys God's goodness. Every human being can watch the same sunrises, experience joy. They can experience love, many of those things. But a huge piece is missing if they do not give God the glory for it, or do not recognize the source, the hand of God in it. But we do know so how should we respond? Verse 13 through 15 gives us the most basic response to the goodness of God. Obedience. Then because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bazanai and their associates carried it out with diligence. I bet. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper 
under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Idu. They've finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So, they finish the job obediently that God had sent them to do almost 20 years before. The command is carried out with diligence because Tatanai is a loyal subject to the king and suddenly the opinion of those local objecting Samaritans was meaningless. If objectors are going to be impaled on a beam of their house, there won't be much of a problem for now. I just kind of imagine dejected Samaritans watching from the sidelines as newly energized Jews are now enthusiastically completing the work in the next four years. In fact, we know it's four years. It says, encouraged by the prophets, um, they complete it and it gives the dates. Now, Ezra chapter 4 verse 24 told us that they, uh, the work came to a standstill until the second year of Darius. And this is the sixth year, so second year, sixth year, four years it took to finish this project. One of the, one of the factors here is, again, the encouragement, the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. Now, we met them in chapter 5, verse 1, when the project had stalled for those 15 years, God sent Haggai and Zechariah. And so that's why we took several weeks to study the little book of, of Haggai, because we had the exact words of Haggai that he preached to make chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 happen, that they got restarted. What about the preaching that we see now here in uh, 6, verse 14, during this four-year span? What, what was it that encouraged them to keep going? We actually have some of the, some of the prophetic exhortations of Zechariah Zachariah in Zechariah 7. So the plan is that next week we would look at Zechariah 7 to see what he preached. And that chapter opens with another time designation. It's the fourth year of King Darius. So they started in the second year of Darius. They finished in the sixth. And sure enough, Zechariah 7 says that in the fourth year, so halfway through this project, there was this encouragement, the exhortation, some rebuke, to keep them going. It just shows that we need God's word to keep obeying God's word. We, we have to do this. We have to come together. We have to study the word of God. We have to be in the word of God because otherwise we know that we lose heart. We know that when we are away from God's word, we don't just maintain our faithfulness to God. We have to be exposed to the word of God. One thing very clear here is that uh, God controls the timing of his will. We have all these dates, so we know exactly historically when these things uh, happened it's kind of good to look back and see that, as we mentioned earlier in Ezra, the amount of time that the people of Israel were in exile had been prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah prior to it happening. 
So Jeremiah 25:11 says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That's a harsh discipline, we would say. But it also showed them that there would be an end. In fact, Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, recognized, hey, we're coming to the end of this time. He was an official in Babylon, of course, towards the end of this time. So let's look at the uh, timeline a little bit of the 70-year captivity. There were Babylonian kings, and then Cyrus took over, and there are Persian kings. The first of those deportations or exiles into Babylon took place in 605 B.C. And indeed, that was a 70-year captivity when they returned under Zerubbabel, Ezra 1, exactly 70 years later. Here's an interesting parallel. There had been three deportations, and at the final trip in, Nebuchadnezzar, that's when he destroyed the temple took off the last group of tens of thousands of, of, of uh, prisoners, really, and destroyed the temple. Do you know that it's exactly now 70 years where we find that this temple is complete because it's four years after 520, it's 516 B.C. It was 70 years. In fact, Zechariah in Zechariah 7 makes reference to the 70 years of the temple as well. God controls all timelines. He doesn't just decree what will happen and then see how long it takes. He knows all our timelines. He knows the day we're born. He knows the day we will die. He knows the length of each season of our life, what will interrupt it, what will change, what will shift when we will see particular glimpses of his goodness shining through, when we will struggle with the clouds of something other. He controls the timing of his will for those, or as we do his will. He controlled the 70 years of discipline. He controlled the ascension of Cyrus, who took over Babylon to make the decree. He controlled who came back when, and that they got started, and there was a 15-year delay, and when they finished. You and I don't know how long some of the hard seasons will take, but God does. And so if we are in a hard season and are tempted to doubt the goodness of God, don't. Because that did not change. His good plan is on schedule. The hymn we sing says, When darkness veils his lovely face, we rest on his unchanging grace. So in a sinful world, darkness, dark clouds are there, but only from the perspective of our time, God's goodness persists. We are to respond with obedience. What else? Second response, verse 16 to the end of the chapter, is to respond with joy, joyful praise. Verse 16, Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. 
For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel, which is interesting because only the two southern tribes, Judah, came back, and yet in their sacrifice they wanted to represent the whole of Israel, honoring, it seems, their past as well as the future unity of the nation. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem according to what is written in the book of Moses. So they responded with joyful worship at the dedication. So this is a special event. This isn't on any Jewish uh, calendar. They are, they are installing the, the, the groups, the Levites, according to the law. But this event was about what God had specifically done for them. They held a ceremony. I can't help but see the parallels in our church family right now. Uh, in fact, it was four years ago that we launched what we call Multiply to build the Discipleship Center. And the first two years were mostly praying and giving and trusting God for what seemed to be an enormous uh, amount of money. God's goodness was seen. Uh, as we were here and watched that building fund begin to grow. I think God's goodness will have been seen as you have been, make, as you made faithful, uh, sacrificial commitments, and uh, you would have your own stories of God's goodness. Two years then into that effort, a large enough portion of the money uh, had come in that we broke ground two years and a month ago, basically. And so then we get to see the goodness of God through the process as final plan changes and construction and some of the sometimes frustrations. And, and now we're occupying the whole thing, beginning to enjoy it. Later this fall, we plan to celebrate and dedicate like Israel, minus the animal sacrifices, but uh, we'll soon be announcing the, the, the weekend we want to do that. We want to uh, finish the building aspect. There's still, of course, the uh, final piece of the paving the parking lot and back. But we want to celebrate the completion of the, the building itself. We want the walls to be installed, which are ordered and currently delayed at the manufacturer. And we want the kitchen to be complete. The base cabinets are coming in. Tomorrow, I guess. We want to celebrate with joy. Sometimes God knows that we will appreciate his goodness better through tangible stuff. You have stuff that is actually marked by God's goodness, don't you? It might be the house you live in, the apartment you live in, the car you drive, some special thing that you enjoy, a boat motorcycle, that has God's goodness written on it. And that should not surprise us because that's how God is. God gives good gifts, James 1. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. This is a powerful metaphor that we need to understand about the goodness of God throughout our life. 
First of all, it marks out the source of goodness that we've been talking about. The source of goodness is not evolved. It's personal. It comes from God. So God is like the sun. You know the sun is always shining, right? (laughs) The sun always is shining. God always is good. But what do we experience? We experience the variations and the shifting shadows. But the variation in shifting shadows does not alter the persistent goodness of the source of good. We experience the shifting, the shadows, and the clouds. On my recent motorcycle trip, the highlight for my friend Reg and I was uh, the day we rode a road called the Going to the Sun road. It's in Glacier National Park. Going to the Sun Road, you would hope, if you're going to spend a day there, you would hope for a sunny day on the Going to the Sun Road. It wasn't. It was partly to mostly cloudy, but it didn't rain. And so in spite of the cloudiness, we saw the beauty as we traveled this road. It was pretty cloudy, but it was still beautiful. Why? Because the sun above the clouds was penetrating, and we could still see beauty. And so at times, and we would even see where there was sun on other parts, even if there was not sun where we were. And even if it was all cloudy, it was still all beautiful, and there was beauty in the details. Now, mostly I put those up there because I want to show you my vacation pictures. But it's actually a very good illustration, I think, of the goodness of God. We glimpse his goodness. Whether or not right now we're under a cloud or bright sunshine. Nothing has changed about him. Whoever you've you've taken off on a jet on a very cloudy, rainy day, what do you immediately experience? Ah, the sun was shining. (laughs) Because now I'm above the cloud. But meanwhile, there may be clouds here, but there's not clouds there at at the takeoff, but not at the destination. And the goodness of God is persistent. And But we will sometimes see God's goodness is more obvious on this person and, and less obvious on me, that person or on me, and uh, yet it's persistent. But someday, we'll be in complete and perfect sunshine all the time. This day in Israel of dedication was one of those days where it was bright sun and the goodness of God was everywhere. They experienced it at the dedication. They experienced it as they celebrated the first of the scheduled feasts of the Jewish calendar, verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. I'm sure this is the first time it came around on the calendar after they had completed the project. The priests and the Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. 
For seven days they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is back-to-back with Passover, because the Lord had filled them with joy. That's amazing. Filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, this specific glimpse of the goodness of God, so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. How'd they prepare to celebrate? They ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord. You cannot enjoy worship of a holy God unless you are pursuing holiness and separation from the corruption of the sinful world. You may experience the goodness of God, but you will not be able to enjoy worshiping God for his goodness unless you are pursuing holiness. If you ask yourself, what's the difference between you and your neighbors? Do you come up with not much? Their house looks the same. They mow their lawn the same. They may use more curse words. They may have a different belief system, but is it, is it possible that actually their goals and your goals are so much the same because they want money and pleasure and prestige and you check all the same boxes? Or is there a distinction in that your goal is to seek the Lord? And that's why as you seek the Lord, you experience and, 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 and can identify that which is unholy so that you can better worship and enjoy worshiping God. If you don't enjoy worshiping God, that's like a red flag. It says, why don't I enjoy worshiping God? Because as we pursue holiness with the goal of worshiping and, and seeking the Lord, we will be seeing clearly the glimpses of his goodness and God will fill us with joy. And we begin to see each of these details as that which God has done. So this life in a sinful world is a time we see glimpses of his goodness. Enjoy them. And then someday we'll see it face to face. Every one of us has hard things. You might be under some serious clouds, even right now. Be assured the goodness of God persists. And that someday, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, authority, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Most of you know that in April I had the sad but glorious privilege of celebrating uh, the lives of my mom and dad who passed away nine days apart. Like all, their lives were touched by pain and grief as well. Dad uh, was the only uh, child in his family uh, to survive into adulthood. Uh, He had a stillborn brother, a sister who died of leukemia at 19, and a brother who was hit by a drunk driver at 22. 
Later, my mom and dad would bury my sweet, godly oldest sister, uh, who passed away at 13. It's not a unique story. We all have places and ways that our lives have been touched with grief and sin, even the sin of others. The crowning memory, though, that I have about dad is not how hard his life was, but how focused he became on God's goodness. And the last conversation I was privileged to have was after our Palm Sunday services here. And uh, Eric handed me the phone and said, I guess if you want to talk to your dad, you better talk now. So from my office, we had this brief conversation as dad was, uh, hospice had just arrived and he was, he died the next day. I got home in time, but he uh, wasn't able to talk by the time I got home. But his last words were about how good God had been to him. And I know it's all good now, right? It's all good. None of you ask me how my parents are anymore. Because <laughs> it's all very good, just how God had intended it to be. So you see, the sinfulness of this world does not contradict the goodness of God. But it's simply that we who know our good God by faith in Christ and become part of his family, we understand and can see the glimpses of his goodness shining through whatever's going on, which whets our appetite for the goodness that's eternal. Let's pray. Father, we bask in your goodness. You know, Lord, our weakness and temptation to doubt your goodness when something has clouded our view. Thank you for your word, for the encouragement, for the record, both of Scripture and the powerfully encouraging reminders of your goodness we have as we meet with one another in the body of Christ, to be assured that your goodness is consistent. And we so look forward to that time we are with you and experiencing it in full. In Jesus' name, amen.